I suppose all human beings are fascinated by prophecy. Its predictive nature satisfies our curiosity about the future or maybe our fears of the future. But in any case, we are attracted to prophecy and its predictions of what will come to pass or what may come to pass. Biblical prophecy is a little bit different. It's different in this sense. It is predictive with a purpose. It's predictive with a purpose. God not only is going to tell us what will happen, but he's sending a message. He's teaching us something about forming our faith in the process. In the next four lessons, we're going to look at some of the prophecies of a man named Daniel. Now, Daniel's prophecies are what are called apocalyptic. And basically what that means is we are going to see some strange visions and some really fantastic beasts. Let me take you back in time and introduce you to Daniel himself. Our time is 605 BC, 605 years before the time of Christ. And let me tell you what's happening as you look at this map of the world at that time. The nation of Israel has long since received its laws, the laws of Moses from its great lawgiver in about 1400 BC as God brought the Israelites to the promised land from Egypt. The Israelites reached maybe their peak of glory and grandeur in about 1000 BC under the great King David and his son Solomon and the building of the temple to God in Jerusalem. Well, between that time and 605 BC, where our story is set, Israel saw a succession of failures, failures of faith, first and foremost, kings who didn't follow God's commands, who weren't faithful to God, a people who went away after other gods. They experienced spiritual catastrophes. They experienced political failures. They experienced military failures and oppression from the nations around them. And so in 605 BC, the Israelites find the huge, powerful Babylonian empire literally on their doorsteps. And as you can see on this map, the Babylonian empire has completely cowed Egypt in the south. It is controlling all of the known world in the Mediterranean area. And so the kings of Babylon required tribute from the Israelites. And this Israelite king at this time had decided not to pay the tribute. Well, a new king named Nebuchadnezzar saddles up his army. They march down, destroying countries as they go, reasserting their dominance in this area. And when they get to Israel, when they get to Jerusalem, the king says, no, wait, just kidding. My check must have gotten lost in the mail. We really are going to pay you. Well, Nebuchadnezzar is no fool. He knows they're going to pay. But as an insurance policy, he took hostages. He took young men from all the best houses, from all the important people, whether they were noble or important or business leaders. He would take these young men and took them back with him to Babylon. In Babylon, they served two purposes. First, they were an insurance policy that 
the families that were in control in Israel would continue to pay the tribute that they owed. But the second reason was he took these young men and sent them to college, if you will. They went to three years of training in Babylonian culture and customs and mathematics and systems and processes because, you see, Nebuchadnezzar intended to put these brightest, the best and the brightest of Israelite society to work administering the far-flung Babylonian empire. Well, Daniel is one of those young men. I want you to think of Daniel at this time in 605 BC as maybe a high school senior. He just took his ACTs. He's a qualifier for national merit finalist, and Nebuchadnezzar says, that's the kind of guy I want. So he grabs up Daniel and some of his friends in the chess club, and he takes them back to Babylon with him. Well, shortly after this, the Israelites will fail to keep their part of this bargain. And in 586 BC, about another 20 years, the Babylonians will destroy Jerusalem. But our story begins in 605 when there's kind of this uneasy peace and the young man Daniel goes back to Babylon. Now why, you might ask, would God begin to give visions to Daniel of some of the most important prophecy about the future at this particular time? Well, at this particular time, Israel is disappointed. Israel knows that she has failed to follow her God. She knows that she's in trouble in the world. She's weak. She's basically a pawn being played between the Egyptian empire and the great Babylonian empire in the north. The people are disheartened with their own failure, and they wonder, has God left us? What does our future hold for us? You know what? I think that the prophecies in that time that came to reassure the people that God had a plan were not only relevant to them, but I think you're going to see these prophecies of Daniel are very relevant to us today. You see, our circumstances aren't necessarily all that different. Whether it's globally as the church in a world that's becoming more and more hostile, just like the Israelites experienced, a very hostile world, we too wonder, how will our God work our future out? And in our personal lives, sometimes we encounter hostile circumstances, and we wonder, how will God work for good in this situation? Well, the prophecies of Daniel are illustrative in the sense that they certainly are relevant to our past, but I'm going to show you as we decode these how they're relevant to our future as well. So we find Daniel in 605 BC, as you can see on the map, making the trek from Jerusalem to Babylon. In the book of Daniel, I want to show you begin with two visions. And let me start with the first and tell you it's in Daniel chapter 2. And this is the story of one of King Nebuchadnezzar's dreams. And it's the dream of a large statue or an image. But let me tell you what was happening. Nebuchadnezzar went back. He put Daniel and his friends into college, if you will, into training. But Nebuchadnezzar had a disturbing dream one night. And he called all of his wise men in, all of his advisors, all of his cabinet, if you will. And he said... I want you to tell me the meaning of this dream because it's troubled me greatly. This is how chapter 2 opens up in the book of Daniel. And the wise men say, well, sure, tell us your dream. 
We'll tell you what it means. Well, Nebuchadnezzar, again, nobody's fool, thinks he's maybe being played a little bit by his advisors, and so he says to them, no, I'll tell you what, if you guys can really figure this out, you tell me the dream and the explanation, because I think you guys might be making up these explanations. But I'll tell you what, you tell me the dream. Wise men say, Nebuchadnezzar, only the gods could know what you dreamed. We can't know what you dreamed. He said, well, let me give you a little incentive. And let me put it this way. If you don't tell me my dream and what it means, I'm going to kill all of you. And sure enough, King Nebuchadnezzar issued an edict that all the wise men would be put to death unless they could tell him his dream and its interpretation. Well, unfortunately, this applied to Daniel and all the college students. They were considered in that class of wise men or advisors to the king. So when Daniel heard about this and talked to his young friends who'd come with him, he said, let's pray to God that perhaps he might reveal this to us so that we would not die along with everyone else. So he went to the king's household and he said, tell the king, we have the answer. Don't kill all the wise men. He went back and he prayed and he prayed and that night God gave him a vision of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And so our story opens as the young Israelite Daniel is led into the presence of the great emperor Nebuchadnezzar. Our story begins in uh, Daniel chapter 2, verses 31 to 38. Let me read this to you. Daniel says this to King Nebuchadnezzar, You looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold. Its chest and arms were made of silver. Its belly and its thighs were made of bronze, and its legs were of iron. But its feet were partly of iron and partly of baked clay. Well, if you're Nebuchadnezzar, by the way, at this point you're thinking, okay, this guy is sharp because this is no vague dream. This is very specific. But Daniel goes on and he says, while you were watching this peculiar statue, a rock was cut out, but it wasn't cut out by human hands, whatever that may mean. And it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay, and it smashed them. Then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold were all broken to pieces at the same time and became like chaff on the threshing floor. In other words, completely obliterated it into dust. Then the wind swept it all away without leaving even a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and it filled the whole earth. This was the dream. And now I will tell you what it means, O king. You, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. A little exaggeration, maybe so, but no question, the Babylonian emperor was ruler of anything he wished to rule, and he was the absolute ruler over all of it. Daniel said, you are that head of gold. Your kingdom 
is that head of gold. He goes on, after you are gone, another kingdom will rise up, but it will be inferior to yours. Then next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything, and as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. But just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, this will be a divided kingdom. It'll have some of the strength of iron in it, but as you saw, iron mixed with clay. The toes were partly iron, partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong, but partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with the clay, so the people will be a mixture. They will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. Let me pause there for a second. What he's saying is the head of this statue is gold, and that represents the Babylonian Empire. And the chest is of silver, and that's going to be the empire that comes after you. And then the belly and the thighs of bronze is yet another kingdom after that one. And finally, those curious legs of iron will be a powerful kingdom, but a kingdom with some clay in it, some brittleness to it. He said, in the time of those kings, the, the iron mixed with clay, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. What an amazing vision. A dream of Nebuchadnezzar and then a vision that explains and understands it. There can be no doubt that Nebuchadnezzar's dream came from God. And there can certainly be no doubt that the explanation of that came from God. Well, let me explain this. This is pretty commonly known, but it's amazing. As we stand here in 2017 and we get to look back, you can see unbelievable brilliance and predictive power of this vision. In 605, this young man, Daniel, explains what will happen over the next six hundred years in the geopolitical realm of the world. Let me show you four maps, and we'll talk about these four kingdoms. Briefly, the first one is the Babylonian Empire. The Babylonian Empire stretched from the time of our telling, 605 BC, until it was overthrown, just as predicted, in 539 BC. So the Babylonian kingdom that Nebuchadnezzar headed at that time was the kingdom of gold. It was powerful. It is basically modern-day Iraq, by the way. It's kind of interesting to place these things together because it's nemesis, the kingdom that comes next, the silver kingdom that would overthrow Babylon in 539, is a Persian kingdom, which is the history of Iran. So let me flip forward to 539, and you see the great, what's called the Medo-Persian Empire, the Medes and the Persians, but basically the Persians. Think of that as headquartered in modern-day Iran. Think of Iranians today as Persians by heritage, by history, if you will. But the great Persian Empire is that empire of silver, and sure enough, in 539 BC, we'll talk more about this in an interesting vision in a future lesson, 
They destroy, overcome the Babylonian Empire and reign until about 331 BC, so over 200 years. The Persian Empire is powerful, all powerful in this part of the world. The history is rich, and we'll dive into that in a future vision as well. Think about Xerxes the king and the Persians fighting the uh, Greeks and the 300 at Thermopylae. All of this history is happening during this time of the Persian Empire, and Daniel foretold it. He said there will be this empire of silver. But after that, 331 BC, will come another kingdom. This is a kingdom of bronze. This bronze kingdom is the kingdom of Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great was a Macedonian. He's a Greek. And this Greek army sweeps out and overthrows the massive Persian Empire in about 331 BC. And after Alexander's death, which Daniel will have another vision that goes into even more detail about this, he had four generals that followed him. And they ruled from about 331 until approximately 168, actually in Israel, until about 63 B.C. And so these Greek rulers ruled for a very long time. They ruled in Egypt, they ruled in Israel, they ruled in Iraq, they ruled in Iran, ruled that known universe. This is the kingdom of bronze. And then finally, the kingdom of iron. The Romans. The Romans rise up and overthrow this weakened Greek empire in about, in Israel, in that part of the world, about 63 BC. And so, the, before the time of Christ, think Julius Caesar, think uh, Mark Antony, you know, think the Emperor Augustus Caesar. In that time period, they are controlling all of this world and have overthrown that Greek empire. Well, they kept that Greek culture. They kept that Greek language. They kept a lot of the, the Greek culture itself, but they brought that iron of Roman military might and Roman engineering. They really were that kingdom of iron. Well, as you know, God speaks about a stone that was cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. And that stone was thrown at this Roman empire and shattered it and set up an empire that will last forever. What is this happening? Well, you and I both know that in 605 BC, Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar are getting a vision of God's Messiah, of the establishment of God's kingdom on earth, the church, the body of believers, a kingdom that will never end, the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Listen to how this is described. This vision of Daniel is happening in 605 BC. But further back in the time of Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah the prophet lived a hundred years before Daniel. And listen to this prophecy. He says, he will be a sanctuary, but for both houses of Israel, he will be a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes him fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. He's talking about the Messiah being a stone, using that same imagery. He says, but this stone, Daniel says, will crush the empires of the world. But this stone will also be a stumbling block, if you will, for those followers of God. Look at this. 
in Psalm chapter 2, which is probably very likely even earlier than Isaiah, we read this, I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I become your father, speaking about Jesus, the Messiah. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance. In other words, you will overcome all the nations on earth, the most powerful nations on earth. The ends of the earth, your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like clay pottery. So what do you see in Daniel's vision? You see this imagery of the Messiah being a rock, a rock that will cause people to stumble. In fact, in the New Testament, what's Jesus often referred to? He said, I'm a stumbling block to you. I'm the cornerstone of God's kingdom, eternal kingdom, but I'm a stumbling block. You can't accept that I am the fulfillment of that prophecy. But at the same time, he said, I am the cornerstone, I am the rock that will overcome the kingdoms of the earth. And so God continues to use this imagery of a stone, and we see it in this most graphic way in Daniel's prophecy. Well, let me ask you a question. How did Nebuchadnezzar take this? How did this all play out? Well, strangely enough, in chapter 2, read you verse 46. Nebuchadnezzar, after he heard this amazing explanation, said this, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, and he paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and an incense be offered up to him. Then the king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, a revealer of mysteries, because you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then he gave Daniel high honors and made him the chief amongst all of the wise men of Babylon. And so in this process, you find Nebuchadnezzar acknowledging the wisdom and the insight of Daniel. And so God elevates Daniel to work through Babylon. Well, unfortunately, King Nebuchadnezzar's ego was bigger than his memory because in chapter 3, you may remember the story of three of Daniel's friends in uh, their Babylonian names were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And King Nebuchadnezzar built that statue, didn't he? But he built it all of gold. And he said, everyone's going to bow down and worship this. Well, it seems King Nebuchadnezzar had a big attack of ego. And he said, you know what? That might be true, but you know what I think? I think the gold statue is going to be all gold, and it's going to last forever, and people are going to bow down and worship me as God, not even your God, Daniel. Well, you saw how that worked out, and Nebuchadnezzar saw again the power of the God of gods and the Lord of lords. But by chapter 4, his ego had returned, and you'll see him going insane, literally God throwing him down from his kingship. We're not going to talk about chapters 3 and 4, but if you want to read that on your own, it's interesting to see how Nebuchadnezzar, despite seeing these amazing things, still didn't believe in God. Well, there's a second vision. We want to fast forward to Daniel chapter 7, but when we move to Daniel chapter 7, we're actually going 50 years into the future. Now, remember this young man, Daniel, who is elevated to the chief of the wise men. He becomes the chief advisor, not just to Nebuchadnezzar, but to his successor and his successor and his successor, all the way down to a king named Belshazzar or Belshazzar. Our time now is not 605, but it's about 550. 
So 50 years, maybe a little bit more, have gone by. Daniel's now not a young man of 18, let's say. He's now an old man of 68 or 70. He's an old, wise man, and he gets another vision. And in this vision, he sees something terrifying. And he sees a vision of four beasts. And let's walk through it, because what you're going to see is this is God reaffirming what King Nebuchadnezzar had seen 50 years before. Daniel chapter 7 opens like this. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, about 550 BC, Daniel had a dream. And visions passed through his mind as he was lying on his bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. And Daniel said, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came out of the sea. Now, in apocalyptic visions, oftentimes the sea is seen as a symbol of political, the political world, the physical, military, political world. And so he sees four great beasts coming up out of the sea. This is going to be four great kingdoms arising out of the world political structure. He said the first beast was a fantastic one. It was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted up from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a man, and the heart of a man was given to it. So you see the kingdom exemplified by this ruler, and we begin to realize this is not a beast. This is a representation of a kingdom, of a ruler. He said, but there beside me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. But then again, I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back, it had four wings, like the wings of a bird. But this beast had four heads, and it was given the authority to rule. But then after that in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was a fourth beast. Oh, a terrifying and frightening and very powerful beast. It had iron teeth. Does it sound familiar? Connecting these visions. It crushed, it devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from the former beasts. It had 10 horns. Now in apocalyptic literature, a horn is a symbol of power and 10 Ten fingers, ten toes is like a symbol of the created world. This, is, this kingdom was all-powerful on the earth. But maybe it also means there were ten kings. We'll talk about that in a minute. It had ten horns. And while I was thinking about these horns, what could this mean, he said, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up amongst the other ten. And three of the first horns were uprooted. But this little horn had eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth that spoke boastfully big words. And in my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, a human being. But that term son of man is kind of loaded to Jews. It basically is talking about, ah, the Messiah who come in the form of a human being. I saw one who looked like the son of a man, Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. 
God himself. He was given authority and glory and sovereign power over all people, nation, and men of every language would worship him. Well, clearly this is the Messiah. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will never pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Some interesting imagery here, by the way, a couple of things. One, do you, that phrase, son of man, is really curious. If you remember all the way back in the Garden of Eden, God creates Adam and he creates the beasts and he gives Adam dominion or power over all the beasts. He's the highest of creation. But then the serpent, one of the beasts, tempts Adam and Eve and they fall. And so God puts enmity between Adam and the created beings. Well, here now you see this son of man, literally a son of Adam, who is now being given dominion over these kingdoms, which are each exemplified by what? By beasts, by all the various beasts of the field. You kind of see a powerful symbol here of God setting things right again. In other words, God is going to restore Adam and his children to their rightful place, but specifically in the form of the Messiah lifting up the people of God to have dominion over the world. Second, interesting little twist. This is kind of off the subject, but you saw that he said, I saw the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. But you also see other prophecies that talk about the Son of Man or the Messiah coming meek and gentle, riding on a donkey. Well, in the Talmud, which is a book of wisdom of the Jews composed over centuries, there is, uh, in the book of the Sanhedrin, there is a little piece there that tries to explain this. It said, if Israel is worthy when the Messiah comes, he will come on the clouds of heaven. If Israel is not faithful and not worthy, then the Messiah will come humbly riding on a donkey. How appropriate is that, that Jesus comes humbly riding on a donkey to God's unfaithful people? Well, Daniel gets an explanation. He said, I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit by this vision. These visions were so powerful. And the vision that passed through my mind, it disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there, an angel, and asked him the true meaning of this. So he told me, and he interpreted these things for me. The four great beasts are four kingdoms that will arise from the earth. But the saints, meaning literally the holy ones, the chosen ones of the Most High of God, will receive the kingdom and possess it forever. Yes, indeed, he says, forever and ever. Well, I think you can see that 50 years apart, God is giving these two visions to Daniel. And from our vantage point, looking back, both of these are predicting in the same way that there will be these four kingdoms that come through history that will lead up to the time of the Son of Man, the rock cut out that will become a mountain, that will become a kingdom that will never end. And so you see this brilliant prophecy in the past of the Messiah. I want to talk about how that's more than just a prophecy in the past. So let me skip forward. I want to show you a little graphic here. There's a great little picture of the statue on the left with the head of gold and chest of silver and the thighs of bronze and the feet of iron and clay, and then the four fantastic beasts that represent these kingdoms. If we had time, we'd kind of go into some of that symbolism in this apocalyptic vision. 
Probably the most famous apocalyptic visions are in the book of Revelation, which about a hundred years after the birth of Christ, the apostle John sees visions that connect very much with this. They connect with the past. They use the same imagery, if you will, but they're going to look forward to the future. So let's talk for just a few minutes about what's our takeaway from this. In one sense, it's a powerful historical lesson of God's foresight that literally hundreds of years before the time of Christ, God has foreseen and indeed God is moving in the world to bring up kingdoms and bring down kingdoms. And he is working through these kingdoms to prepare the way, if you will, for his Messiah and the kingdom that will never end. So at its most basic, what do we get out of these fantastic visions? Is basically that there will be four kingdoms from the fall of Israel until, if you will, the resurgence of God's people and the kingdom of God coming to the earth, the kingdom that will never end, the kingdom that was promised to David so many centuries before. And so on its most basic level, it's God showing, I am in charge of all of history. I am orchestrating history. The kings and the emperors believe that they control the world, but all of history moves to God's purposes. It's prediction with purpose. It isn't just showing off saying, hey, guess what? I know what's going to happen in the future. It's, I know what's going to happen in the future. I'm orchestrating what's going to happen in the future. And the reason I'm doing that is to redeem and reclaim you so that you can come into my kingdom. How awesome is our God? But secondly, there's a purpose. These prophecies are not just prophecies about the first coming of Christ. When we go into the book of Revelation, we realize, oh my goodness, Daniel is not prophesying about just one event. He's prophesying about two events. And this is really common in biblical prophecy, and that is that there's multiple fulfillments. In one sense, as if this wasn't cool enough, God's mapping out 600 years of history and bringing the Messiah into the world. And you go, okay, that's cool. God goes, are you kidding? You've seen nothing yet. All of that prophecy, as cool as it was, is just a forecast of what I'm going to do in the end times. In other words, the Messiah doesn't come once. The Messiah comes twice. Jesus came once not to condemn the world, to save the world. He comes again to judge the world. And so this imagery of these kingdoms is carried forward into our future. For example, when we go into the book of Revelation, we see Babylon and Rome, these great empires, as in the book of Revelation forecasting the Antichrist in the future, the power of this world, the might of the greatest empires of this world arrayed against God's people. All of those kingdoms in the past oppressed God's people, tried to destroy God's people. He said, you see that? And here came my Messiah, and he destroyed those empires. In the future, the powers of this world, the power of Satan and his false prophet and his antichrist will again try to destroy the eternal kingdom, God's church, the followers of Jesus Christ. There will be a new Babylon. There will be a new Rome. But just as in the past, the Messiah shall come this time in the clouds to a faithful people 
and destroy all of those who seek to oppress God's people, all of those who rebel against God. The prophecies of Daniel are just brilliant in that they're not just prophecies in the past. They're prophecies that happen in real history that teach us an even greater lesson about our future. We can stand in nothing but awe of God to see what he has done and then take heart and be faithful at what he will do in the future. But there are a couple of interesting lessons in these two visions that apply to you and me directly. Let me give you an example. The statue is an, it's a brilliant image, but basically what you have in the statue is you have this rock and it literally, physically destroys the empires of the world and they're swept away. We think, wow, that represents all the power of the world, the military, the power, the jails, the emperors, and God's going to sweep that away. And he did, but not in the way people expected. Well, that's the coming of Jesus, isn't it? Everybody thought he's going to come, he's going to raise an army, he's going to destroy the Roman Empire, he's going to kill the Roman army, he's going to be the emperor. God's people are literally going to rule and they're going to physically destroy the empires of the world. God destroyed the Roman Empire, didn't he? He overcame the Roman Empire. He built his church, he built his kingdom that no one in 2,000 years has been able to destroy despite their best efforts. And yet he did it in a completely unexpected way. Jesus came not as the conquering king. He came as the suffering servant. He didn't defeat Satan the way Satan thought. Ah, he's going to get his army and try to fight my army. And Jesus said, no, I'm going to be a simple lamb whose blood will establish a kingdom. And Satan is blown away and defeated. And the kingdoms of the world despite the fact that no Christian took up a sword, nobody grabbed their gun, nobody went out to fight the Roman army, and yet, where's Rome? It's gone. And where is the church? It's thriving. That's true in your and my life as well. I don't know about you, but I have expectations about how God's going to work in my life. He's going to work with power. He's going to answer my prayers. He's going to knock down all my problems. He's going to make sure I don't have grief and I don't have pain and I don't have suffering, and yet he does indeed give me an overcoming life. He gives you an overcoming life, but not always in the way we expect. In Romans 8, 28, he says, God works for good in all circumstances for those that love him and that are called according to his purpose. And yet we see that suffering is a part of our faith and our life. But God promises the overcoming life in John 10, 10, the full life, not the pleasant life, the self-indulgent life, but the full, truly authentic, meaningful life. And yet he doesn't do it in the ways we expect. And my question for you is, are you ready for God to work in your life in unexpected ways? I don't know about you, but when I pray, I say, God, all I really need you to do is execute this little plan that I have. If you could smite him, and if you could change her heart, and if you could work these circumstances out, and if you could get the stock market up a little bit, and God says, you know, I will work all things for good, but you're going to have to trust that I'm going to do it my way. Are we really ready for the unexpected ways that God works in our lives? Do you ever have those moments where you go, oh, I never saw that coming? God, I had this plan, but you showed up here. And so I'm going to join you in what you're doing. God has always worked through history in unexpected ways. True to his word, but unexpectedly true.
Secondly, the beasts. Very interesting that you see the beasts, the empires of the world. Jesus comes into the midst of real social, political world. This is not some Buddha or some Gandhi working through the world as kind of a religious wise man who said, I'm totally withdrawn from the world and you should come into a monastery with me and I'll just tell you all the secrets of being and maybe your soul can escape this awful world. Jesus came flesh and blood, hungry, cold, shivering, caring, healing, touching, encouraging, right in the middle of the world. In other words, God works not so much in churches. God works on the soccer field. God works in the workplace. God works in the family. God works amongst our friends. God works in the hospitals. God works in the disasters. He works in the hurricanes. He works in the earthquakes. And that's what he calls us to. He doesn't call us to withdraw. He said, son, daughter, your future is secure. Now I want you to go be my representatives in the middle of the social, historical, political turmoil of the times. And so sometimes I think we get a little depressed. We look around the world, we go, man, this world's just, it's just going downhill so fast, it's hard to believe. You know, we tend to think this world is getting so bad, and there's a sense in which it is, but we're not called to withdraw from it. We're called to engage it, to go into the mess and the horror and the difficulty and the suffering of this world and go be God in this world. The Messiah came in the middle of the politics of the time and we're called to dive in there and show God's grace in the world. So a couple of specific things to take away from all this apocalyptic vision. I want you to think about how awesome God is that not only can he map all of the history to bring his kingdom about, he can map your and my future to bring his will about. If he's trustworthy with that, he's trustworthy with any problem that I have. But expect him to work in unexpected ways and expect him to send us right out into the real world to go touch real people with healing and encouragement and grace and love. Well, next time, we are going to see more strange beasts from Daniel. Because Daniel's visions aren't through. He's going to dive into some of these visions a little further. And there are some really important lessons for us as we encounter the next of the strange beasts. I look forward to being with you next time.